All right, so Deuteronomy chapter 19, let's pray and then we'll get into our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, Lord, this evening as we take a look at these two chapters, it's just wonderful how it is that you made provision for those who, Lord, who um, have sinned but done so um, not in a deliberate way. Lord, you made a way for them to uh, go to these cities of refuge and uh, be protected and, uh, and Lord, that you may, um, Lord, just uh, really allow uh, that person to be, um, the whole situation be reviewed and, uh, and really to understand it and be judged accordingly. Lord, we thank you for that as a picture of your mercy. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that this evening as, as we continue our study, we're going to be taking a look at um, just private property and how... Um, that's a blessing from you and in a personal right that you've given to us and that we are to be mindful of each other, um, how to be witnesses and how to take um, an accusation and, and, uh, and deal with that and, uh, and so much more, warfare and strategies and all that. Lord, we thank you for your infinite wisdom in all of these matters for they pertain truly to life um, as we live it, but Lord, more importantly, it, it pertains to godliness and uh, you instruct us on how to uh, live life. Lord, uh, a blessing to us, but glory to you. And so I pray that you would uh, bless our time together, uh, give us understanding, and uh, help us, Lord, to apply what we learned tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this evening, uh, we're covering a few things. Um, like I, I said in the prayer, cities of refuge is, is what we're going to cover in the first chapter, in chapter 19. Uh, but also private property, uh, how to honor uh, personal private property and its boundaries, um, the handling of judgments when, when witnesses are involved, and how to deal with false witnesses as well, and laws concerning warfare. So let's start out with uh, the establishment of these cities of refuge. So Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 1 says, When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses. You shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession. So that any manslayer can flee to them. So this is the establishment of these cities of refuge. Uh, within the land that the Lord is giving to the Israelites as they continue to uh, get prepared and receive instruction from the Lord as to how to possess the land well, uh, we have this situation. And it has to do with manslaughter. The manslayer is basically speaking of someone who is, uh, does not have a murderous heart, does not have a murderous intent, but accidentally kills someone else. And, and so that's why these cities of refuge were established. So uh, what we have here, though, at the beginning of this chapter is how the Lord once again is reminding the Israelites that he will cut off the nations that are before them that currently occupy the promised land. So he's promised them that. He's reminding them that he's the one that's going to be dispossessing them from the land that they're in at the present moment. The Lord once again reminds the Israelites that He will bring them into the promised land to dwell in, to live and enjoy, uh, for it to be a blessing to them. Now all of this, it's, as we get into chapter 22 and we, we take a look at the laws of warfare, 
Um, all of these reminders are important as the, the army of the Lord assembles. Like Keep all these things in mind, but they're going to be reminded of those things one more time before they go into battle. And then, from that, God gives them the command to establish these three cities of refuge within this land to provide basically a safe haven for the manslayer. In other words, the person who kills someone with no murderous intention, um, a person who kills another by accident, or uh, it's just a, a set of circumstances that leads to a person's death. Not, just not intent. The bottom line, it was not intentional. It may have been um, my neglect, my oversight, or something like that, but it, it wasn't really the intention of the person to murder the other. Now, these cities, you know, for uh, anyone who's really interested in symmetry and everything has to be in order. These, uh, this, the distances between these cities were to be measured and placed perfectly in the middle of the land. <laughs> For me, I, I love that because, I don't know, it's just things have to be in order. A- any of you have that weird condition? No. <laughs> I know my friend there, Steve, we share that. But yeah, that's why I have to do this with the podium. If you see me doing it, it was like over here, I can't, it has to be here. And then, anyway, so these three cities, and there, but there was a purpose behind it. Um, it wasn't just because, um, you know, he wanted to satisfy all the people um, who, you know, are um, fanatical about symmetry and all that. But, but it was for a purpose that that person who did commit Um, you know, did kill someone else and they didn't do it intentionally, um, had a city of refuge accessible to them. Um, And they could get there before the avenger of blood got to them. So they were to be centrally located and um, anyone could uh, um, really flee to them uh, in, in time and they were easily accessible. So Joshua established these cities. West, well, we see how the Lord is commanding for three cities to be established west of the Jordan and three cities east of the Jordan. Uh, they were located in Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, according to Joshua chapter 20, verse 7. And in Joshua 20, verse 8, they established the cities of refuge east of the Jordan, uh, Moses had done this. Um, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. But, again, um, they had already been established uh, with Moses, according to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 41 through 43. Now, we also, if you're jotting down notes, jot down Numbers chapter 35, because it's important that adds details to the cities of refuge, the purpose for them, and gives some more examples. So it's Numbers 35 verses 9 through 28. Again, just giving us additional details in regards to the establishment of these cities of refuge. So, these first three verses basically establishes um, a a commandment by the Lord to establish these cities of refuge for the safety of the manslayer, to flee to and be safe from, from any person who wishes to avenge. And normally it would be uh, a relative that would be assigned to be the avenger of um, their loved one's uh, life. So we have that. And then uh, we, have, uh, we continue in verse 4. 
an example of uh, this uh, unintentional uh, killing and and, uh, and again the commandment to set apart these three cities. Okay, verse 4. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger... Pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. Let's stop there. So, again, these cities um, were established to protect the person who kills another by accident or self-defense also, without enmity or uh, murderous intent. Uh, I had mentioned the uh, avenger uh, of blood previously, which was common and even expected for someone of the person's family that was killed to make sure that the murderer uh, paid for, um, for that killing, that murder, uh, was punished properly, was judged properly, and ultimately was put to death. In Genesis 9-6, this is where we get this, and this is where they got this. Um, at the time, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And it's for this reason that the only way someone can be safe, safe is if that person literally outruns the avenger of blood and makes it to a city of refuge. Can, I, I mean, you can just imagine at the moment that they realize that they have just killed this person unintentionally accidentally, they better make their way to this city of refuge before the avenger of blood gets to them. While in the city of refuge, the case would be reviewed and it would be determined whether the person really did kill the other uh, by accident, um, unintentionally, without murderous intent, and, uh, and then their life would be spared. Uh, we see here an example of what an accidental death would look like. And again, as I referred to Numbers chapter 35, um, there are additional examples of that very thing there as well. Therefore, for this reason, the cities of refuge are to be established for the protection of those who kill unintentionally. And then there's additional cities of refuge that are to be added as needed as we look at verses 8 through 10. Uh, verse 8 says, And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give you, give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all the, this commandment, which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So the Lord's desire is that regardless of how large uh, of a land they occupy and dwell in, um, that there was always a city of refuge that was within distance, you know, that, that they could get to, they could flee to if this was to happen. Um, God did expand their territory and the cities were established. Again, referring to Joshua chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Uh, we have them, all six cities are there, west of the Jordan and east of the Jordan. Moses reminded them that this promised land was a blessing. 
Um, we see her, here how the, uh, Moses was reminding them that provided they, they do something, they love the Lord, obeying His commandments, and living life according to His word and obedience, uh, really this was, this was an honor, it was a privilege, it was a blessing. God was giving them this promised land. And so Moses reminded them that this was a gift from God. And with this gift, God did not want innocent blood to be shed in it. That is, God considered the person who had accidentally killed another innocently, without intent, um, and that person was, was killed, actually there would, there would be murder that would have taken place. Because it would be out of anger, it would be wrongful vengeance, and the guilt of murder would be on the people. And so the Lord did not want that to happen. If a person killed someone else unintentionally, he wanted that person to make it safely to that city of refuge, that his blood would not be shed, um, really uh, without uh, any kind of real purpose. So, but we go on, because all of, all of this is, um, is speaking, really, I think about our time, our day and age in which we live in. And as we go over these next few verses, just think about where we are as a nation and really internationally as a world, and see how well this fits with how it is that we are um, really handling uh, these types of uh, crimes and the punishment. Um, just ask yourself if it's fitting. So Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 11 through 13 says, But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. So that it may be well with Israel. And no pity for the murderer. This is how murderous people who seek refuge in one of these cities will be handled. The elders of the murderers uh, of the of the murderer city where he came from and where this was uh, where this took place send for him, and he will be handed over to the avenger of blood, the person who will assure that this person pays for what he did. He will be judged and sentenced to death if he is found guilty. This is not someone who accidentally killed another, but rather someone who lies in wait, uh, plans. Um, This is premeditated murder. Um, You know, it's either premeditated or not. Um, It's either accidentally or it's not. There's nothing in between. Um, So... If it was premeditated, if you lied in wait, if you meant to kill him, if you had anger in your heart, then you're guilty and you will be put to death. This person is not protected and is not to be pitied. In other words, don't feel sorry for him. He cannot plead insanity, temporary insanity. This person exhibited an understanding and knowledge of what he was doing and was to be tried and judged accordingly. Judgment of the person who is guilty of murder is to be followed through with in order to remove the guilt from the people, from Israel, from among people. Uh, God, like Ray was 
talking about earlier how it is that as we, we try and express uh, just who the Lord is in our lives and, uh, and express our gratitude and our love for Him, it's, it's hard to really express that and communicate to the Lord. I mean, our words do fall short. But what I love about the Lord is He doesn't look at the outward. He looks at our hearts. And what do our hearts look like before Him? Um, sometimes we can put on a, a facade and we can make up stories and we can do all kinds of things. But really what the Lord was looking at as far as this person that was guilty of murder is the heart. If the heart was wicked and evil, that person committed this crime, this act of murder in a manner that was premeditated and again out of anger, then that person was to be judged. No judgment, no removal of this evil. No removal, all guilty because of non-judgment, because sin remained in the camp. And it is a mandate to remove that which is an abomination and a defilement to God's people. And so that person was to be removed. Now, as we continue on, we're going to see how it is that to follow through with judgment actually should strike fear in the heart of the people, and they would be brought to a place of obedience and falling in line with the law. And so I know that society tells us today, the world tells us today something different. That that doesn't work. Right? But God says otherwise. I can just imagine if more people were receiving capital punishment, um, if, if there was that follow through, I have no doubt that there would be less crime. You know, our, our, uh, our jails wouldn't be filled the way they are. And uh, in our society would look uh, a bit different. It would look a bit different. Um, it goes way back, though. It starts in the home, father, mother. Uh, many people who are in jail today um, have no father at home to begin with. Um, so anyway, judgment. Sin needed, it was commanded by God. Uh, this, this crime, this murder was to be judged and dealt with. To be removed from within and among his people. For abomination and defilement was not to remain within the Israelites. So, verse 14 speaks about something else. So we change the subject here. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. So, here we have one verse. Don't move the boundaries. Don't touch them. They've been set by the elders. Um, and so... Uh, this is to respect the boundaries that have been set. Don't, don't take someone else's property. Don't enlarge your, yours falsely. This is a fundamental right that God established, the right to personal property. And we actually acknowledge it here in the United States. As the founding father, John Adams, said, quote, The moment the idea is admitted into society that property is not as sacred as the law of God, and that there is not a force of law and public justice to protect it, anarchy and tyranny commence, close quote. President Calvin Coolidge said, quote, ultimately property rights and personal rights are the same thing, close quote. Rancher and property rights activist Wayne Haig said, quote, if you don't have the right to own and control property, then you are property, close quote. Now, 
<laughs> that goes way back. But it goes way back. Way back. Right? We have the Word of God. God has clearly entrusted land as a possession to individuals and no one is to encroach on their personal, private property without due process of the law if there is a challenge as to whose it actually is. So there has to be due process. So someone just can't come and take it. And so that's what the Lord was establishing as they were going in to possess the promised land, the land that He had given to them. Again, God in His infinite wisdom is laying out you know, that which would bless the people and benefit them greatly. So as we continue, witnesses and false witnesses and just judgment in verses 15 through 21 of this chapter. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has caused his brother and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. You shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. One, one witness to a crime, no case, no hearing. Just one. Two or more witnesses is what the standard was. This is the only way that a charge could be established and heard. It's the only way. The, the only way that it would be credible, credible in the court. The first issue addressed here is whether or not a charge would be established and heard. That's the first thing. This is not because the situation can be easily turned into basically a he said, she said, said situation or that one person can lie without having any corroboration and get someone else in trouble and have them basically handed over to judgment. But because um, one person, have you ever seen a situation and, and you saw it one way, you perceived it one way, but actually that wasn't... Um, what it was like that that's that's not what the intention was and it's it just if someone else had a different perspective and saw things it could be explained and it it could be that the person isn't even guilty of doing anything now that happens all the time and so this is this is what the lord was avoiding one person one witness uh, you could be confused you could have not seen it correctly so to, in order to avoid things like that, um, what the Lord required is two or three witnesses in order for a charge to be established and then heard. Secondly, if someone raises an accusation against someone else that is malicious in intent, in other words, a false witness, then they and the accused is to present themselves 
Number one, I, I love this because this is the very thing that we need to understand, all, all of us. As we deal with certain situations, number one, number one, you appear before the Lord. Like The, the Lord is there, He's watching, listening, and, and He knows it all. So that's the first thing to really acknowledge. And so the first thing, present yourselves before the Lord. Number two, the priests. And thirdly, the judges that are in office at that time. If upon hearing the accusation and through the investigation, it's learned that the accusation was false. Uh-oh. You were malicious in intent. You brought up this accusation against your brother falsely. And you are found out. Then the accuser is to receive the punishment that would have been handed down to the person who is being accused. Whatever the offense may have been and whatever the judgment may have been for that offense is now applied to the accuser of that brother who is a false witness with malicious intent. Through this process... Basically, the evil intent would be revealed. It must be judged according to the Lord, accordingly, in order to judge the evil, basically remove it, purge um, the people of Israel um, from having this evil among them. The judgment of such evil intent would also send a strong message to the rest of the people. And this is what I'm talking about. This is God's economy. This is um, God's command. This is what His intention was in setting these laws out. And so... It should strike fear in the heart of people. Don't do this. This is what will happen to you. If you're found out, you will receive the punishment that this judgment would have come to if that other person was found guilty. But you're found guilty now. In other words, think twice before raising a false accusation against another. Don't do it. They should fear doing such a thing because it will come back on them. Remember, they were to present themselves before the Lord. Number one. What is it that he doesn't know? What is it that hasn't been revealed to him? Nothing. Everything's revealed. He knows all things. He knows he knows the he knows the intent To pity the guilty or to be weak on applying judgment and consequences is to allow crime to flourish and neglect the responsibility to instill fear in the hearts of anyone that is thinking of committing this type of crime in any crime. To pity the guilty, to be weak on applying judgment, decays society, weakens its soundness, and invites people to violate one another without fear of judgment. No fear. I can do whatever I want. And I'll get away with it. Maybe I'll receive a slap on the hand and I'm out. Ha ha. Creates chaos. And evil increases and destroys the fabric of society. God in his infinite wisdom. Said no. This is how we are to make sure that you as my people are living life respecting and honoring one another and blessing me and glorifying me in, in so doing following my laws do not violate, violate those, those laws do not pervert them do not manipulate them because in so doing you're going to break up and you're going to crumble as 
my people. Today, too many people in, 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 America, in America pity the guilty and lessen the consequences of breaking the law, and therefore our society is crumbling because there is no fear. I see less and less fear. Every, every day, every day, almost every day, I see on my phone pop up some kind of news of another officer that's down, that's been shot. No fear. These men and women are putting their lives on the line. It's interesting because these very same people who are shooting, if they get in trouble, or their families, they're quick to dial 911 and call a fireman over. In fact, a fireman was shot. Wasn't it a chief that was shot in, uh, was it Long Beach? Was, was just coming to a call. And he was shot and killed. It was ridiculous. Why? Because I think for this reason. Lastly, along with this, verse 21 is given for those guilty of a crime to receive just punishment. It protects them, really. Because oftentimes what we want to do is when we have someone do wrong us, we want to throw the book at them. And we want them to get just everything, don't we? Just Like just, yeah, throw the book at them. Throw them in jail and lock them up and throw the key away. And so, the Lord was saying, you cannot apply a more severe punishment to that person than the crime would actually dictate. God was making sure this did not happen. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, uh, hand for a hand, foot for foot. So it had to be like, you know, the, the crime, the punishment had to fit the crime. Nothing more, nothing less. It just had to fit. It had to be fitting to the crime. Now, what we need to understand is that the Lord called out the religious leaders because they were applying this to personal relationships. This law was not meant for personal relationships, for taking vengeance on someone else. It wasn't for that. He called them out. Because this was to be applied to judgments in courts of law, in Israel, not to personal relationships going back and forth. And that's why the Lord Jesus um, said, hey, listen, this, this is not what this law applies to. It's not personal relationships. It's for crimes that are being seen and judged in a court of law. That's what it's for. And plus, we're not to be handing out judgment. The Lord assigns certain people for that. And we're not it. Unless you're a judge, you might, you might be a judge. I don't know. So the Lord made that very clear. Now, going on to chapter 20. We take a look at how to assemble an effective team of warriors that trust God. So now we're going into battle. Let's take a look at verse 1, chapter 20. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and, and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. 
Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. To give you the victory. So this was phase one. We're assembling an effective team of warriors that trust God. This is the first thing that happens. Number one, don't fear. God is with you. He goes with you. Even if you look across the battlefield and you realize that the enemy is larger than you, has more horses than you. In other words, tanks and you know has a lot more soldiers than you and maybe has a vantage point, all of that. Don't fear. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 6 says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Remember the story of David and Goliath? I, I love it because, you know, you go back to David and Goliath, you see the Philistines and, and, and Goliath, he's, he's mocking the Israelites and the God of Israel. And then as David, David tries on Saul's armor, you know, it's too big, goes out with a sling and stones and, and takes down the giant because God was with him. I, I love that courage, fearlessness. God is, with, God is with us. What's wrong with you guys? Why are you shaking in your armor there, Right? And David just goes out and takes down Goliath. I love that story. Remember how the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt without firing a single shot. What did the Israelites do to deliver themselves out of the hand of Egypt? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, Moses raised a staff, set it down, spoke, whatever the Lord told him to speak. Nothing. And yet they were delivered out. The Lord split the Red Sea. They crossed as on dry ground. Swallowed up all of the Egyptian army completely in the Red Sea as he consumed them in the water. All those things. Re- remember that. Remember those things. For us, I, I know we, we read about what had taken place in that time. And we think, well, that was with them. What about today with me? No, that's the same God. You are God's people just as they are. Come on, we can't can't say, oh, we believe the whole word of God and then look at that and say, well, that was a story from a long time ago. I don't know how God's going to get me through this today. You serious? He's the same mighty God. He's with us. He goes with us. And he tells us today, don't fear, don't be faint-hearted. I'm with you, I go with you. Secondly, listen to who God is in the midst of the battles before you. This is the second thing that we see here. As a priest is God's representative to communicate his word. I love how Moses was telling them that when they got close to the actual battle against the enemy, the priest was to come out and give them a talk, a word of encouragement. Remember that God goes with you. Therefore, do not allow your hearts to grow faint. Do not allow your hearts to grow faint. It wants to grow faint. Do not allow your hearts to grow faint. In other words, your heart 
will get to a point, if it's overwhelmed, that it will lose consciousness. Have you ever been that fearful? In other words, have you ever gotten to the point, point to where you're so overwhelmed? You're, you're so burdened that you stop thinking. You've grown faint-hearted. So perhaps you have experienced being faint-hearted. Because you've felt so overwhelmed that you've stopped thinking. The Lord does not want you to stop thinking. He wants you to think. He wants you to meditate on His Word. He wants you to remember who is with you and going with you, going before you, has your rear guard, is, is with you on all sides. He wants you to remember those things. He wants you to think, not lose consciousness, not stop thinking. So don't fear, don't panic, don't be apprehensive. In, in other words, what we see here, don't dread. In other words, don't anticipate and expect loss because God is with you. You see this great army before you. Don't expect to lose, expect to win. Have great expectancy. Who cares who's before you? What they have, what they don't have. Do not lose heart. The main word of encouragement that was to come from the priest was that God was with them. What else matters? God's with me. He will always be with me. I'm eternally His and He is eternally mine. Nothing else matters. And this is what we're getting to through this whole chapter, and that is that they were to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. He reassured them that He would fight for them against their enemies. I will fight. And then the second phase comes in, verses 5 through 9. These officers pick up where the priest left off. Verse 5 says, Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people." The commanders were not assigned until they had the actual people who were going into battle. That's when they were assigned, not beforehand. So the officers pick up where the priests left off and engage the soldiers to determine who will go and who will return to their homes in order to reduce the team to only include those who are completely given to fight without any reservations, without any doubts, without any fears. Number one, basically here's the bottom line. Anyone have any unfinished business at home that he feels he needs to tend to? It's kind of a funny question if you think about it. 
Because I'm sure everyone had unfinished business back home that they needed to attend to. There, there's always something to do. Any, any homeowners here? Yeah, yeah. It just never ends. There's always something to tend to. Always something. Always some business that you have, have to deal with. But it matters in battle. When you have someone that holds reservations about what they are doing because their strongest desire is to be home enjoying something else. They don't hold the goal of victory and advancement in battle greatest among all things that they could be doing. They need to know at that very moment, this is the very place I need to be. Of course I have other things that I could be doing, but this is the thing. This is the most important thing. This is where I've been assigned, I've been called to, and let's go, let's do this thing. I'm completely in. A person who has reservations will regret joining the fight and will be resentful toward the leadership and grow bitter towards others. In fact, regarding the cost of following Jesus, he says in Luke 9.62, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Secondly, after the priests have already said what they said, and then here the officers are saying, hey, is anyone fearful or faint-hearted? I know what the priest said, but I'm asking you. Anyone? Anyone fearful? Let me ask you this. Do you really think that the most skilled and experienced warriors are not fearful when they go into battle? There's fear. There's absolute fear. But there's a difference between the person who allows fear to control them and the one who goes in spite of that fear and exhibits courage under fire, continues to move forward. Both of them have fear, but the two handle fear in two completely different ways. One goes into it, face first, the other one tail between their legs and they they go the the other way. So they're asking, anyone fearful? Anyone faint-hearted? Are you you at the point to where you can't even think right now? You've completely lost consciousness. Yeah, Yeah, go home. Bye. Because you'll be the cause of others folding when it matters. When you're in the thick of things and bullets are flying, you're going to cause what you have, the condition you have, to impact and affect those around you. It's interesting how one person can change the climate in ministry. I've seen how if one person quits, others seem to be encouraged to follow through with what they've wanted to do for a while. You see it. You stick around in ministry for a while and it's the very same thing. Anyone faint-hearted? Anyone fearful? You know, it's like we, we can be asked that same question in ministry. If you are, hey, let, Right now is not the time for you to engage, at least not in this place, you know, with this ministry. Because there are different ministries that require more of you. Sometimes it's just head-on engagement, you're moving forward, and you're just not fit for that at the, at the moment. But there are other ministries to where it's not that. 
I would rather have five godly, loyal, strong, committed brothers to fight with than an army of 50 or 500 half-hearted, fear-filled, doubtful men who are constantly looking back and wishing they were somewhere else. Give me five guys. Give me ten guys. I just, just men who are all in. I'm all in. Just that would come alongside and, and do this thing. I, I love that. I've talked about that with, with several different of my brothers. And they know my heart. This is the person that was going to fit this group of people that were used by God to go in and take the land. The rest of them, they're home. These guys were the ones going in. They were advancing. And they were serving as a blessing to everyone else. Not that everyone else was not God's people. They were all God's people. But these were the men that went in and advanced and took possession of the land. And God is saying through this that the size of the army does not matter. It's the heart of the men that makes them warriors or not. Trusting God completely or not at all. There was no middle ground. It's either all in or all out. Which one is it? Judges 7 tells us of Gideon's army that God dwindled from 32,000. Can you imagine I have 32,000? Uh, still not a match to 135,000. But, you know, the Midianites have 135,000. We have 32,000. Uh, God says still too much. What? Yes, too much. Well, the process, you guys know the story, right? All the way down to 300. 300? 300. 135,000. Lord, you are going to receive all the glory. Right? Absolutely, without, without a doubt. And yet God gave them victory over the Midianite army, again, that consisted of 135,000. So does size matter? Does the difficulty of the circumstance matter? No, it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Trust in God. Do not allow fear to control you. Advance and think about who is with you and what victories serve to encourage you in the moment. Again, Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And Jeremiah 10.6 says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Amen, indeed. Right? And then we have warfare, conduct, and strategy. Verses 10 through 20. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city... All its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. 
Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Let's stop there for a moment. So God didn't desire for his people to just go in guns a-blazing. You know, that, that, that's not what he instructed them to do. At least not for people outside of Canaan. And that's what we're talking about. People who are very far away are people outside of the land that he had given to them. For them, first offer peace. If they accept the offer of peace, then they will serve the Israelites. If they do not accept the offer of peace, then besiege the city. Uh, do you all know what besieging means? I, you know, I, I didn't know exactly what it meant, not before today, but some time ago. I remember, it's like, what, what is besieging? I keep hearing about besieging a city. Like, This is what it means. You surround it. You cut off all supplies and communication going in and out. Uh, you stop water flow, if, if that's possible, going into it. You weaken its perimeter, and when it's fully weakened and open to attack, enter it. They're all demoralized and devote all of the men with this here, with this command, to destruction, but take the women and children and livestock and everything else and enjoy it as spoil. It was basically, it served to, uh, to, to be provisioned for the soldiers as they go in. And this was what the Lord had given to them. So this is what besieging is. And some um, could last several years. Um, And we see evidence of that throughout Scripture, how that can happen. But other times, it doesn't take very long. You cut off everything, and before long, uh, they are completely demoralized. They are hungry. They are thirsty. People are dying. And you can go in and basically take it over without hardly any effort whatsoever. So this was the command for the cities that are far. But for the Canaanites, they were to be completely devoted to destruction. Everything that breathes is to be killed. And in verses 16 and 18 that we read, there was to be no offer of peace given to the Canaanites. They were to be completely destroyed lest they cause the Israelites to fall into idolatry and sin against the Lord their God and judgment would come against them. Now we've gone over this in the past and this is one of the things that the Lord was, was very clear. They are, you are to destroy them all um, because of their uh, sinful practices. We've gone through you know, the, what those sinful practices were. Uh, idolatry. And if you allow them to remain, they will teach you those things. And you will sin against the Lord your God. And you will fall into judgment. And the Lord didn't want that. And so they were to completely wipe out the Canaanites. And then verses 19 and 20 to wrap up. Says, When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by welding an axe against them. Uh, you may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human? 
that they should be besieged by you. Only the trees that you know are not trees for food. You may destroy and cut down that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. So when building siege works, don't destroy the fruit producing trees. They're providing for you. Food, sustenance, and so don't, don't cut them down. You know, allow them to remain, not only for the present time, but for the future as well. For the sake of the land. Remember that you're going in, you're, you're, you're dispossessing the people, but you are going to dwell in this land. And so the Lord was saying, don't cut those down. I know you need wood for siege works, but don't cut them down. Cut all the other trees down. Siege works. Another word. Um, so, siege works is basically building ramps and towers to be used around the city um, that's being besieged in order to shoot um, arrows down into the city. Um, they, were, they could also um, construct these uh, rams by which they would destroy the gates, um, kind of destroy the, the walls. They would undermine them and, um, and they would gain some leverage and, and bring it down. So, these, are, these were all used. That's what siege works were. Um, towers and ramps and rams that were all made out of wood. And they would be used to basically weaken the city that they were besieging and bring them to destruction. So even in the midst of battle, God wanted them to think about exactly what their needs were and consider the long-term benefits of even these fruit-bearing trees. So if we have any... Tree huggers, right? Know that the Lord spared the fruit trees. That's a good thing. But the other trees, um, they were to be used. They were to be used in order to, to build these ramps and towers and all these things that, they, that were necessary at the time. Now, all of this is just God's, again, His wisdom is absolutely amazing. This is what He was instructing His people in order for them to possess the land well. All of this. And it would benefit them. This is what they were to do. So we saw cities of refuge honoring personal property. The handling of judgments when witnesses are involved. How to deal with false witnesses and laws concerning warfare. God is truly amazing. And His wisdom is truly more valuable than all the riches on earth. And we're going to close with this. Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. And I'm just going to read it through. Just to verse 15. The value of God's wisdom. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. 
delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Heavenly Father, may we desire above all wisdom from heaven. May we incline your ear to you. Lord, who is man that you are mindful of him, Lord, giving us, Lord, these instructions and your perfect knowledge. And yet, who are we also to argue with you? Lord, I pray that as the Israelites received instruction on how to possess the land well that you have given to them, Lord, I pray that as you give instruction to us on how to be stewards of what you've entrusted to us, that we today take from from your word, knowledge of your word, applying it to our lives, and it be wisdom to us, blessing us and glorifying you. For we know that all good gifts come from the Father of lights. Thank you, Father, for your love your mercy, your grace. And thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.